Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we interviewed a special guest, and that's Darren Doherty. For many of you, he will not need an introduction, but for others, Darren is a leading consultant and designer in regenerative agriculture, working on thousands of projects around the world, currently leading the way with the Regrarians platform and his Rex trainings, which we'll talk about in this interview. So Darren has had an extraordinary experience um, um, working on, on many, many different projects, many different pieces of land on many different contexts all around the world, designing, planning, and etc. And so his opinion about trees on landscapes and agroforestry is really important to us in order to understand a bit better how we can make it work, where did it work, where not, and you know what it takes for a farm to implement these types of systems successfully. Um, this episode has a special focus on education, training, and planning, as well as quite a lot of psychology in it. We don't focus so much on the technical agronomy, but this is a, it's very important for us to deal with these bigger picture issues um, and, and some of the context that goes around planting trees because they're really important. So we hope you enjoy. So yeah, I, th- I thought that, you know, we usually do start like this with our guests. Um, maybe you could give us a little intro as to how you got into agriculture and, uh, you know, how you got started on this path, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With a bent towards how I got into agroforestry as well. I think general agriculture to start off with, and then we'll we'll little by little head into the the forestry layer of uh, yeah, cool. Because I started, work. I probably started with forestry before I started with agriculture. So no, start there then. Perfect. You know, I don't see much of a difference between agriculture and agroforestry. Um, uh, uh, in fact, you know, my sort of vision of agriculture is agroforestry. That the two have to go together. And that's really born out of some of my earliest memories growing up on my grandparents' farm because my dad was killed um, in Vietnam when I was a baby um, in the war there. Um, mm. I was only four, just four months old and my mum was very young and so we, and we were already living at my uh, grandparents' farm, so my maternal grandparents. So, um, so uh, and that was a very mixed farm. Um, not classic i suppose for australia because a lot of australian farms are um well they're mixed like when you say a mixed farm in australia it means you grow wheat and you grow sheep um or you grow you know you grow a cereal crop and you grow cattle um which we did but we also had a lot of forests my grandfather grew up in the depression he was born in 1915 and um before he went to um to college per se, um, he uh, during the depression, as sort of like a 15, 16 year old, he there was no jobs, he couldn't afford school or whatever, so he cut wood um, and he cut forests and did that. 
And I've got some great photos of him when he was about 19. He was really ripped, like, because mm. <laughs> they just used saws and axes back then. And it, yeah, Old school, yeah. yeah I've, ne- I've never been as ripped as he was. But anyway, he, uh, so at our farm, we had um, one, two, three, four blocks of forest on the farm. Uh, one was a plantation uh, that we put in. Uh, one was, which was u- a eucalypt plantation. Another lot that we, that, um, the other three lots were all regrowth, um, which were a coppice and standards sort of setup. Mm. And I, I remember spending a lot of time um, going out there when I was, you know, as as small as you could be to hold an axe, which is in our case probably four or five, and going out there and thinning trees. Um, you know, whether it's just a bit of a, you know, a little coppice coming up in the paddock of, of a eucalyptus, stray eucalyptus growing in the paddock or an acacia or whatever, um, and then progressing to, you know, stuff when I was 14, 15, 16, a bit big, you know, a lot bigger. But the other thing which I pride myself on even today is I split a lot of wood for my nana. Um, so we had a wood stove in the house and it was sort of always on, didn't matter how hot it was, it was on and we always had a soup on the stove and all of that. So one of my biggest things that I um, enjoyed as a, as a young person was um, cutting wood and splitting it and making the perfect stack and my nana coming out and patting me on the head, and, <laughs> you know, all that sort of thing. You know, there's, uh, it, it was sort of probably my first um, OCD moment um, where you've got the, you know, <laughs> and I still do that today. I, split, I love winter. Um, I love splitting wood. I'm really good at it. It's one of the be- things that I'm actually best at is splitting wood. <laughs> I really not designing yeah. farms, splitting wood. No, 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 splitting wood. You know, the other, call Darren I, to split your wood at your home. He's very efficient well, other, and he does a very yeah, nice stack. I do, and I do fantastic <laughs> kindling. I'm, I like, um, yeah, you know, I, I can split um, an inch wide. Um, so if there's an inch piece, I can split in the middle of that. That's how bloody good I am. But anyway. No one, no one gets to see it. It's just me. So you'll have to work for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've got a very nice Austrian splitting axe, and yeah, I'm pretty into all that. But that's my little sideline. That's the forester but, inside you. Yeah, that's well. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but um, I love doing all of that sort of thing, and um, it was great because it was free. Um, you know, coppice timber that just keeps growing back and. Often when I talk about the forestry layer now as a farm planner, agroforester, I say, you know, make make the cop that we should be making the coppice economy really central to what we do because I see that mm. you know, coppice is such a brilliant thing. Um, how good is it that you can chop something down, use it? It sucks more carbon down than what you would use in burning it um, when it regrows. And it regrows for nothing, and it's like, okay, don't have to plant a thing again. It's you don't have to do all of that. So it's just like you, it can go forever, um, which is awesome. So yeah, yeah that's, that's fantastic. So there's a lot of there's a lot that goes in for that for me in the way that I think, and um, yeah, there's a I like I like the perpetuality of things, and that's really built out of that time as a young fella. Um, as a, you know, my formative years. And how did you, I mean, at the moment, what is your activity? Like what, what's, what are you doing at the moment on a, 
um, in this agricultural space? What's your role? So 30 years after, um, well, 32 years this year, um, after shifting into the organics movement, um, I, was, I left school, travelled, got into hospitality, and then um, after doing that for four or five years, I, I started managing an organic store, uh, organic food store. That was in 1989. And I then um, ran that for a couple of years. And then in 1993, I started our farm planning consultancy, um, okay. which I've been doing um, since 1993. And um, so where I'm at now after doing however many thousands of farm plans and teaching tens of thousands of people farm planning um, of various different guises, um, I now run a, uh, with my friend and colleague Georgie Pavlov, the Regrarians Workplace and that's a sort of a, it's a digital platform that we opened in 2017. And we really facilitate um, uh, um, conversations and facilitate learning and professional development between, um, uh, well, between producers around the world. We've got about 75 different countries and about 3,000 people that we work with. Um, and that's growing all the time. So, um as you would know, Dimitri, we were talking before we started, that's a really quality space and um, people come there for, for professional development and it's awesome that we can link, you know, a, a grazier in Somaliland with one in Russia, with one in India, with one in South America and so on. You know, it's, it's just an amazing thing. So we, a lot of what I do is about joining people together who otherwise... Um, uh, so I, I watch all the conversations and I go, ah, oh, you need to talk to this person. <laughs> and go, so oh, I can't right. recommend this enough to our listeners because uh, I've just joined the Regrarians platform maybe uh, a month ago and uh, the quality of information on there is fantastic. I mean, lots of very of professional farmers and practitioners, consultants sharing uh, on in-depth topics from, you know, soil fertility all the way to water management. It, I'm, I've been really impressed. So I recommend my the listeners to, to check it out. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, it's been great. So, um, and it's also, it's all based on the Regarians platform. So the workplace is, Regarians workplace is our digital platform. And then within that, we, it's kind of, well, it's, well, the workplace platform, as it were, is a Facebook product. So Facebook developed this um, platform in 20, late 2016 and they invited us. We got, you know, you don't normally get a letter from Facebook um, and they said, hey, would you like to come and join? It's like, really, is this spam? Um, anyway, we got this letter, letter from Facebook saying, we've got this new platform and we'd like you to try. So we jumped on mm. and interestingly, we were in the middle of teaching our first online Rex program, which is our um, uh, longitudinal online program that we run. Uh, farm planning program and we're about halfway through it and I said to the as you do you know we're all getting along with things and I said to the to the I think we had 120 people on the course and I said hey we've just joined this um, new platform would you like to have a look at it and at the end of this course we're thinking of switching over so anyway within I think it was in one week 95 to 100 of those people had just jumped on Mm. which was 
And they and they all said, no, we want to be here now. We're in Slack, in the program Slack. Uh, okay. And people mm-hmm. just jumped straight over and went, okay, I think we're here now. We're not going to wait until here, <laughs> which is not really the way to run a course, but that was how it ran. But we set it up so it's all in the Regrarians platform layers, just to make mm-hmm. the distinction. And that's our 10-layer um, platform that we've developed, which is climate, geography, water, access, forestry, buildings, um, fencing, soils, uh, economy and energy. And so, you know, when we have all of these conversations, like you might do on an old style forum, we've actually got them all in these groups. Um, So just like Facebook groups, except this is uh, Facebook developed this platform as an intranet for companies. And it's based on what Facebook were using for for a decade um, to, to manage their own internal process. So they had their own Facebook inside of Facebook, as it were. Okay. So it's a really good architecture and it's worked really, really well for us. We couldn't be more pleased with it. And we're on the Workplace for Good program as well, which means that as a non-profit, we get the whole thing for free. So oh, that's great. cool as well, yeah. I think we've skipped a little step though because, uh, and that's my fault, but how did so you go, uh, how did you end up um, creating this, this, this workspace and operating in this way? I mean, what were the steps throughout your career that led you to, um, now have the role of a facilitator, a connector? Well, I've always been a connector. So when I was running the organic greengrocer, um, a lot of my role was buying food. So mm. um, we'd go out and connect with all of these organic farmers in the late 80s, early 90s. And as I've said a number of times on different um, podcasts, um, once the conversation got beyond... Um, oh, you're selling this, I want that sort of thing, that immediate conversation. It then got to, hey, tell me what the guy down the road or the woman down the road's doing about how are they growing their potatoes because I want to know because they weren't talking to each other necessarily but um, they were using me as a bit of an intermediary. And then beyond that, I started to say, hey, you should meet, you know, this person's growing apples. If you met them, have you talked about how they're doing it? And connecting people who were organic and biodynamic, people who were just starting out, so they were in a transition to organic or biodynamic, and then you know, teaming them up somehow with people who were a bit more advanced. And, and same with livestock and all sorts of things. So that's where my consulting career and you know what you're asking, that's where it all started. And it's always been that an element of my uh, consulting has been about connecting people, you know, because you can't, I mean, there's some consultants out there who who um, kind of practice as if they know everything, um, mm. and which is really annoying and egotistical. And I think really when my friend Brock Dolman said, you know, we've got to get out of the ego system and into the ecosystem, that really rang true for me because that was really the way that we were running anyway. Um, you know, you've got to realise what you don't know or know what you don't know, and I'd always practice that because of my upbringing. And so what that meant was, well, if I don't know something, then someone does. And so I need to make that connection. So all through my consulting career, that's been the case. But then I didn't have really a digital framework in which to really make that, uh, uh, enable that and or an IT platform. And that's when when the workplace came to me because I'd tried forums, you know, Anybody who, I mean, I was an early adopter on the internet. I got first got the internet, I think, in 95, 96. 
Um, I've still got my first modem. I sort of I leave it on my on my desk at home as a sort of a reminder when the internet shit and you go, oh god, it was nine point six um, kilobits per second second or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so as a reminder, but you know. Back then, it was forums, it was email lists, it was really crap, and it was really hard and slow to inter- interact. But then when you come forward to these fantastic um, new platforms, which allow you to tag people and, you know, create all these groups and so on, and, you, know, there's, you know, there's Hivebright and there's a few others that are out there as well um, that enable you to do it, and they're fantastic. They just enable, well, I'll put it to you this way. When we were really, really singing, um, like doing lots of farm plans and lots of development back in the late 90s, early noughties, uh, we were doing 100 to 120, 150 jobs a year, mm. like projects a year with a big crew, lots, super busy, just doing lots and lots of work, planting lots of trees, you know, putting in lots of, you know, putting, doing lots of farm development, fencing, trees, dams, houses, roads, all that stuff. And it was a really big lot of work. And these days um, I'm able to do, I'm able to handle about three times that amount thanks to the IT platform that I've got. Now, I'm not managing, project managing, but I think if I was, I'd still be able to do probably double what I was back then because the IT platforms are just that much more sophisticated and, and enabling. But, I, you know, even then we don't even bother with that because people just, you just connect one and two and you just let them go for it as opposed to you having to have your mm. fingers in every pie. So IT is a really big part of um, the, the whole conversation and we talk to farmers a lot about what IT they've got so that they can um, just do better, be more efficient. We've just had an interview with the president of the French Agroforestry Association, sorry, the director of the French Agroforestry mm-hmm. Association, Fabien mm-hmm. Belaguer, and he was explaining to us how they're using tools. Um, it's, it's a tool called Landfiles, um, and it's basically connecting farmers between them so that instead of a, a consultant coming on and telling them what to do and then going off, they're creating uh, work groups, communication groups, um, oh, where awesome. the farmers are training each other and that's a that's pattern great. we also saw with um, with um, Rowan Reed, who's also yeah. trying to operate in this way, where it's kind of a bottom-up empowerment Absolutely. Uh, and education rather than a top-down consultant comes in and tells you what to do. Which is um, really hard if you don't have the IT platform. So, yeah, yeah. what was that What was that called, That uh, the French model? So he's uh, called Fabien Bellaguer. Mm-hmm. I can send you. Um, it's it's up. It's our last episode. It'll it'll force okay. you to check out our website. Uh, <laughs> <and it's, laughs> thank, thank you. And uh, it's uh, the French Agroforestry Association. No, no. What was the uh, what was the software that they were using? You said that uh, it's uh, land files. The land files. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I'm cool. not sure what like what's the software, but basically the project is called Land Files, and it's it's doing exactly this. But yeah, cool. something to cool. check out. I'll check it out. Um, so that's, so you're not doing consultancies anymore? Not very much. No. Um, it's, look, it's, it's so often unnecessary, um, because of our Rex program. So the Rex program, um, was back when I was teaching permaculture courses, which I stopped doing in 2014, 
from about 2012, I started to get really frustrated with the whole permaculture design course. It's a great course and it's a really good entree into, um, into uh, agroecology and you know, better ways of living. Don't get me wrong, it's really powerful from that perspective. But for me personally, it just started to be really limited. And by that stage, I'd developed the Regrarians platform. And so it just, it, it, you know, I developed my own thing. So it was sort of like I needed to move on into that. So in that crossover time when I was still doing PDCs and I developed the Regrarians platform, it became clear to me that, um, well, and also... What we were doing um, in, our, in the PDCs I was teaching, I was teaching, doing a design a day. So ordinarily in the classic PDC, you do a design at the end. Um, so, you, you know, you build up, build up, build up, and then, you know, in the last day or five days or whatever, you'll, you'll um, produce a design in a group and then you'll present it and so on. Because of my development of the Regrarians platform, I actually started to do that with the PDC. So, and I was using the Mollison order. So, you know, if it was <clears throat> the first day it was introduction, we didn't do anything, but then I'd do, you know, concepts and themes in design or methods in des of design. I'd start to get people to build maps. And then when we got to the, you know, water or trees and the interactions, I started to treat them as layers. And so that, and I encourage people to bring their own plans along. So for their own, because... People come to these things ultimately out of self-interest. You know, they've got their own properties or they've got, they've got their own stuff they want to do. So that's where it really started in that period. And then when I started to run the Rex programs face-to-face, -face, we started to do that as well, but it was more formalised around the Regrarians platform. Then when we started to do the online version of that, it was all about people bringing that, like us facilitating, um, again, a process by which they went through each layer and they gradually built um, according to the priorities that they had in life and what their land was telling them that they had that they should prioritise, um, how to build their own farm plan and just help them to do that. So teach them how to fish, not do the fishing for them. Mm. And that's what you're really doing in a consultancy um, a lot of the time. Um, the, the, the owners of the property who will be the managers of the property with their families over time, they're abdicating um, that responsibility over to somebody else. And I've done a lot of that and I just don't believe it's the right way to do it. It's much better and it's much more empowering. It's much more participatory. When my time spent in aid work really proved that as well. There's so much aid work that I'd done in the mid 2000s um, in Vietnam and then in Sri Lanka and other places where it was all really super participatory and it was just so much better than the classic Western way. Uh, you know, it's sort of like Westerners go in and do aid and they do it highly participatory, but when they go out and do it with themselves, they don't do it, which was always my comment with the big aid, aid organisations, which were funded by governments typically. I'd say, well, how can... Your ag department, like the USDA, they'd go over to wherever and they'd, they'd be highly participatory and it's all fantastic engagement. And then you go back to the US where I've worked a lot and they're doing any of that. I said, hang on. <laughs> people are people everywhere. Just because they're in a developing situation doesn't mean that they need a different approach. 
Um, People at home need exactly the same approach. And so that's the way we've run ever since. And that's been really powerful. Um, And I'm glad to hear that others are doing the same. um, Yeah. Because it just makes sense. And it's so much easier and you can deal with people. There's nothing like self-interest, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's... it's, uh... There's a pattern coming out here, and um, and it's interesting to see such, uh, let's say, experienced um, uh, practitioners that are coming to a similar, converging to a similar conclusion. And it, it must say a lot about the way that we need to be, because you know, when you're when you're looking at creating regenerative agricultural systems which involve a much higher complexity, which one of the barriers to entry is knowledge. You know, we need yeah. to have technical support. And the thing is, how do we provide that technical support? And um, and it and it seems to be coming out that, you know, we can provide it. It's possible to provide it. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It's possible to provide it by these networks through these platforms with peer-to-peer interaction, facilitated by a person, for example, like yourself or like other more experienced, uh, you know, people that are five, ten years up the ladder, um, facilitating and coordinating a bit, and you know, giving tips. I think that's a good point. I mean, I've made that often myself is that it's really good to connect people who are only a couple of years ahead of you mm-hmm. because it's the, you know, the pain's fresher, the mistakes are fresher, um, mm. the experiences are fresher. And, you know, whereas someone who's 30 years ahead, yeah, it's really valuable. But, um, well, times have changed since they were going through a development phase because that whole startup phase, you know, if, you, if you've got to a point of maturity and success, you're not in startup anymore. Unless yeah. you've had some major disruption, which is co- or major change in enterprise, which has caused you to go back into startup, but you're way beyond that. So it, it, it's really helpful to have a meshing of all of those characters together. Yeah, sounds sounds good. Listen, I thought that maybe our listeners are getting eager for us to talk about trees. So, um, well, I, I was talking to um, to uh, Harry Green from Propagate Ventures, and we oh, were awesome. naturally uh, gossiping about you. And he told <laughs> me uh, that uh, your favorite layer is the forestry layer. It's something that apparently you mentioned quite a bit. And on your book, I was also quite uh, well. Like there was when you looked at the, for example, the coppicing and and standard section on the, in the forestry layer, you talk about you know this being the backbone of the farm. You started mentioning a bit at the beginning, but mm-hmm. I thought that maybe we could start by you giving us an introduction to that. You know, why a tree so important for you on the farm landscape, and why is it a backbone? Um, well, if you go into a landscape, well, some people would argue that that there's different backbones. I mean, you might, if you, if you're lying down, well, then the backbone might be the soil. Um, and you know, because everything starts there. But uh, my friend Graham Hand says, uh, who's a holistic manager, uh, a holistic management consultant, he um, he mentions that you know the soil is nothing without plants because plants are the interface between the energy source, the sun, and and this mineral body, the well, the earth, and plants are this living. Um, connection between the two and so regardless of whether it's a grassland or a woody grassland or a closed forest or something in between um, plants have a really key role to play and when I look at our platform and I go to the forestry layer well for us that's all um, living organisms so it's not just fauna oh sorry flora it's also fauna it's also fungi it's bacteria and so on it's and we really think, all right, well, how do they all integrate together? And 
So being a backbone, um, well, you know, if you look into a landscape, there's, there's a couple of things that you look at. One is the shape of it. So if you've got this, this bare bones plain, well, then it's pretty boring. It's just that, but it is what it, it's the it's the shape of the land that really tells you what it is. It's the shape of the land and and the sky, and that's pretty well all you've got. And is there any water in it or whatever? But that's that's basically all it is. If it's just and it's just grass, right? Um, so you then go and if you've got that kind of landscape, and then you go and put trees into it or shrubs into it, some woody plants in a structured way. Well, in the landscape, if you look at, the, you know, you can have a floodplain landscape here and then right next door you've got one that's all wide-spaced agroforestry or savanna plantings or, you know, whatever it is. It starts to get a dimension to it which it didn't have before. And then that, from a backbone perspective, I mean, our backbone is our structure. That's what holds us up, mm-hmm. right? And when I look at that kind of archetypal approach of integrating trees in different assemblies, in different layouts in, onto a property, um, then it defines the shape of how we get around. It also um, becomes a home to organisms which weren't there before and then they become vectors for all co- kinds of variables and activities which weren't occurring before because you just had grassland or you had cropland or something else, which makes it pretty, well, boring really. Um, boring to look at and not as diverse as it could be when it comes to a whole range of different options, whether that's the biodiversity that it, that it, that it invites and hosts um, or whether it's the, um, the different income options and production options that you also can leverage from that. And if that goes on to be, you know, if you bring agriculture right down to it, regardless of what your production output is, you're in the biomass business mm-hmm. and it's the state of different biomass that you produce. Andrew Stewart, um, who's a very close friend of, um, of Rowan Reed, I don't know if you've interviewed Rowan, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. Have, yeah, so they're really close mates and Andrew's an agroforester. He's just been nominated for the Bob Hawke Land, Land Care Award, which is fantastic. Anyway, his farm, the way he classifies his farming output is he produces X amount of wool, but then he produces X amount of pine logs, X amount of honey, X amount of um, bush foods and so on. So it's, but, but you know what it all is? It's all different types and layers of biomass which enable his kids to make a living off the farm and his wife to make a living off, off what is a relatively small farm. So, and so his productivity because of that backbone of, of uh, extra flora um, really makes a, a, a big difference to the bottom line of that. And that is a backbone because if you, you know, we always need wood. We always need honey. We always need this, that, and the other, all of these products. Um, so when you start to build those things in, um, they're always there and they can be managed in perpetuity, which is obviously fantastic. There's nothing annual about it anymore. I mean, I, when I talk about the energy layer, for example, I say you know, one of the sort of policies, as I, as I call it, is that that people need to start behaving like they're perennials, not annuals, because we are perennials, right? Mm-hmm. We're a perennial organism. We might have 
70, 80, 90, 100 years on this planet, but so do a lot of trees, <laughs> right? That's the lifespan of some trees, much more than some shrubs um, and so on. They're, so we are perennial. So why do we have to behave like annuals all the time? That makes no sense. And that's, you know, it's a really big learning, I think, for us to, as we understand our role in, our, in the ecology, especially in better quality agroecologies, well, then, of course, we're going to be thinking about how can we be more perennial. And yeah. that perenniality also goes from generation to generation, just like all perennial species do. Whereas annuals behave like teenagers going to nightclubs, you know. Um, they spend their pay straight away and they hope they, you know, they hope for the luck that they get, you know. It's like they're awfully op opportunistic. So have trees been an inherent part to... To, to all your designs when we're looking at you know the designs that you put in practice i'd love to for us it's always nice to kind of zoom into practical examples to enable our listeners to kind of get a feel for for what it is on the ground um and you know i'm curious because in some contexts maybe it's it doesn't necessarily work i don't know but has it has it always been an inherent part of of your designs i think so i think people well yeah when you, you use the key key point or key word there my designs right so my designs when they're my designs mm. when i'm the consultant and i'm in charge bloody earth there's trees there you know because okay. <laughs> and people when i offered when i when i had that sort of service um that i was offering and still do occasionally you know if i've got a particularly interesting project which you know needs that kind of attention then i'll have a crack at it but most people will come to me, like I've got a, I would say my reputation is as a water guy and a tree guy, right? And as a livestock guy. So really water and agroforestry, you might say, a livestock oriented agroforestry is probably what I'm best known for and a key line guy in terms of how I pull it all together. Mm -hmm. So, so that's my context that's my world view on how things can be but your enterprise might be something quite different and you know you may not wake up in the morning um, thinking about trees you might be a, uh, a wheat person um, you might be a sheep person um, you might be a emu person I don't know whatever you are you're, you're not me so and this is the really big thing I suppose when you're when you're taking the uh, more of a holistic approach with people, especially through the lens of holistic management, is that you're allowing other people to exhibit their own and to determine their own, self-determine their own context. Um, what are they? Um, what do they want their property to or their, their project to look like or their landscape to look like, etc. Now, within all of that, um, because of the way we work with people, we certainly go through and say, you know, what kind of landscape do you want to, do you want to have here? Do you want to have it so that, because some people really just like the look, they get very excited about having wall-to-wall -wall cereal crops and they just, that's what, and, you know, I've met a few people like that. I mean, Harry, Harry Weir in, um, in New Zealand who invented techno-grazing, he's, you know, he doesn't see the role of a tree on his property. Um, he sees true beauty in his techno-grazing, <laughs> boring, bloody fence landscape. And that's what he gets off on. But I don't know if most people like that. People um, like the idea of having a bit more dimension to it. And if you, 
if you sort of, and this is where we go, we say, look, here's the palette of all of the things that you can do, sort of like a checkerboard or toolbox, as someone say, of, of all the bits that you can make a farm do or make an agroecology do. Um, it's up to you to make that assembly, but it's not up to me to tell you what to do. Of course. But it's really, I mean, I, 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 I still say, gee, wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> <laughs> If you had them like this or this, you know, and just sort of, and sometimes it's low, lowest hanging fruit. I mean, it, like I remember years ago um, working with some cereal producers in northern Victoria, which is where I live here, and there's lots of floodplains about, oh, about 30, 40 kilometres north of where I am here, which is where we are here is quite hilly. Um, but as you go towards the Murray River, it's, it's dead flat. And a lot of cereals produced, and it's just wall-to-wall cereal. And it's either wall-to-wall cereal or wall-to-wall sheep. You know, there's not much going on. Um, and some, I remember working with people years ago and talking about introdu- introducing um, farm forestry into uh, agroforestry into their operations and a big amount of reluctance. And we said, well, why don't you... Cause Every farm's got some land which is of a lower capability. Well, when I say every, just about every farm um, has land which has different capabilities. Um, it might be that you've got a stream or a watercourse running through the property, for example, or uh, there might be a stony area or, you know, there's, there's different things that are on the, on the place. And you go to people, well, you know, do you actually get anything out of that? Have you actually done the... If you don't, when you do the gross margins on that, have you determined how much you actually make on that? And when you start scratching at that, you go, well, maybe that's a good spot where you could go and put a block of trees in. Hmm. And, hey, you might even be able to get a grant to do it. Or, you know, you just... So that was a, a way um, of doing that. And you, and you might go, well, gee, we only need to put in 5% of your property into trees and that's all you actually need to do. And to be quite honest, like if... If you look at it from a limiting factor, you go, gee, shelter is a limiting factor to production here. You've got a mm. bare place. There's lots of, you know, southerly or whatever the winds that are, and they're actually a drag on production. If you put in, say, you know, wide-spaced alleys or this, that or the other or some shelter belts and they only have to be 200 metres apart, well, you can barely see them. Um, but they're mm. there and, you know, you'll have that forever and that'll be a legacy that you bring. So there's lots of different ways that you can package that conversation. Yeah. But still, it's up, to, it's up to the individual as to whether they push the go button on that at all. Um, Naturally. But, you yeah. know, for me, this conversation, it's kind of making me think a lot about a conversation that we had with other guests on the podcast. And some guests are saying, you know, plant trees for conservation. And then whatever you reap afterwards in terms of wood, timber production, etc., as a bonus... And some other players, um, usually in smaller landscape places, they're saying you cannot plant trees because there's an economic crop and plant the trees that provide an economic crop. You can't make too many compromises in terms of ecology or ecosystem services because it's not going to convince farmers. And we need to be, you know, we need to to focus here and to and to make the best use of our small landscape, for example. Um, So there's a notion of scale, possibly. But what's your take on that? I mean, do you plant trees 
for economy? Is it is it an ideal to say you're really planting timber trees, for example, for some some serious economic return? What's your experience? Yeah, well, we were involved in the in the 1990s. I was the chairman of um, uh, the box ironbark box ironbark farm forestry network, and um, we got the big. There was a 130 million dollar um, gov- federal government program here, farm forestry program. And our group got 850 grand of that. It was the biggest single grant of any um, farm forestry network in Australia. And the, the fundamental reason for that was A, to fund, uh, I think it was three farm forestry extension offices. But the, but the first part of that, pla- um, of that program um, was to develop a feasibility study to determine if farm forestry was viable in the sub 600 millimeter rainfall area of, of where we are because mm-hmm. here and other places of the world 600 650 millimeters and even really 750 millimeters is seen as a sort of a uh, a, lim- a, a, a bottom level of rainfall that you need to have productive on farm or just plantation forestry at all because you just don't get the mean annual increment um, on, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, uh, more common um, uh, uh, commercial species. Yeah. So, so we looked at it a bit differently because we we'd seen some plantations that were put in in the nineteen eighties um, by the what was the precursor to the land care movement here in Australia, and that all started in this part of the world, in central Victoria, and. We'd gone out and looked at some of these plantings and done the done the assessment on their mean annual increment and what and we were going, actually these aren't too bad. And when you looked at then the value of those species, because these weren't um, in the category of main commercial species that if you went down to the timber store, these weren't species that were available there um, because they just weren't in plantations. Um, it was all pine and and uh, fast, really fast-grown, quite light eucalypts, um, mm-hmm. uh, lower-density eucalypts. These are high. These are some of the densest timbers in the world that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, thirteen hundred to seventeen hundred kilograms per sixteen hundred kilograms to the cubic meter, and their caseas, and stuff that was used over time in really heavy construction. Um, you know, stuff that's F thirty-two. Um, I don't know what your strength ratings are over there, but really, you know, the strongest beam timbers that you can get in the world, right, um, okay. over a span. So super high engineering values, yes, slower grown, but if put through silver cultural practices um, that we knew about, um, you could grow quite short fat trees using particular um, silver cultural processes, which would give you um, a yield... Um, from 25 to 35, which, you know, if I go and talk to someone in Northern Europe about a 35-year rotation, they go, well, who, whoever has that, right? It's like 150 to 200 if you're mm-hmm. lucky. Yeah, um, yeah. But here, because of pine and fast-grown eucalypts, et cetera, I mean, you start talking 25 years and it's like you're a fossil. Um, so, <laughs> so you know, so we started to do that and we put that through the lens. We got a professional forester um, of really high experience um, to lead the uh, feasibility study. And they came out and said, well, if you mill, if you 
do the silviculture yourself on farm and still pay for that, like still pay yourself. And you, um, so you do the silviculture and then you do the, um, and then you thin to production because a lot of these species are really good for firewood. So, you know, you'll generally just get a break even on the thinning. And then if you mill um, the trees at the end on farm using on farm mills like Lucas mills and whatnot, which we, you know, we have some great mills here in Australia. Um, then you'll get a return of between, I think it was about 13 to 17% per annum, which is mm. way higher than what you would get um, from most forms of ordinary agriculture, like, you know, producing sheep or producing crops or whatever else. Um, so that was really compelling. And so, you know, when people said, oh, you can't make any money about it, we're going, well, actually, here's a you know, really conservative feasibility study and yes you have to do work but um, even so um, there's a pretty compelling commercial case notwithstanding like at that stage the carbon conversation was pretty new Mm. Um, it was only starting to come on but we were saying that so well you in future it's likely there'll be carbon credit arrangements which would add to this layer of uh, income and secondly um then there's all of the ecosystem services that would be provided, whether they're shelter for your crops or whatever, which we already knew the Pastoral and Veterinary Institute down past where Rowan Reid lives in Hamilton. They proved years ago that, um, as they had in New Zealand as well, that, you know, in, uh, that integrating trees into, into different landscapes, pastoral or cropping landscapes, had a, 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 had a definite yielding um, increase so when you started to layer that together um there was a pretty good uptake um plus a lot of programs and when you that classic thing of getting key farmers who people take notice of because there's nothing like a farmer showing something off Mm -hmm. i've never been a fan of demonstration farms which have been owned by the government or whatever because people go or rich people because um people go in and go well gee they've they all you know Rural people generally will always say, say first off why they can't do something. That's general mm. around the world I've seen. So if it's a farmer who's just like them and they know is just like them because they've been in the district for a while, and if you can find that person, that they're a real key person in in getting adoption. You can get a couple of those early adopter types, innovator types, and they have a crack and they do it well and they demonstrate and they get people to do field days and all of that sort of thing, um, then you can start to get some broader adoption, which is you know part what this um, program was successful in doing. I mean, it wasn't as successful as we'd like it to be, but it was a damn sight more successful. I mean, you go, you drive around the landscape twenty odd years later, twenty five years later, and there's a lot more trees that have been purposely planted from a farm for farm forestry purposes than there were before, which is great, you know. And have you seen that? Well, that's a fascinating example, huh? and I'll, I'll ask you for the for the resources to that. I'll yeah, sure. It's all end. on the workplace, so I can link that to you. Yeah. And one of the original um, farm forestry officers that we that that program employed is also a member of the workplace. So yeah. 
Nice, fantastic. Um, another reason to get on the workplace. Everybody full <laughs> of amazing people to talk yeah. to. Um, but um, have you seen that across the world as well? In the sense, you've traveled a lot. You've talked to people all like from all continents doing regenerative yeah. agriculture and etc. Is that a is that something that you hear of? Do you, do you think there's a compelling case at the moment for trees economically? And I mean, this is a huge generalization, but uh... no, 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 it's a good question. Recently, I did a, I did a um, presentation for the organic um, viticulture, uh, oh, sorry, the regenerative viticulture symposium, which was um, hosted by Torres, the uh, Familia Torres okay. in Catalonia, um, in Iberia. And one of the things I did on that, like, I, they wanted me in that presentation to sort of show what, what was the state of the regenerative agriculture, whatever that means around the world, integrated agriculture, you might call it. Um, and I, um, agroforestry, and I kind of went through um, and I, I used a mind map sort of graphic process to sort of say, all right, well, here's Asia, here's Oceania, you know, Australia, New Zealand, um, here's North America, South America, Central America, you know, all, I just went continent by continent. And looked at, from my observation at least, what are the key expressions of regenerative agriculture? And it's not, and and the agroforestry part is not as big in some places as it is in others. Um, and then even when you like, if you look at North America, for example, there's there's parts where it's big, uh, where it's it's kind of there. But that you know, a lot of a lot of, especially in the more humid parts of the United States, for example, or Canada, um, a, a lot of their agroforestry practice is more silver pastoral. It's about um, managing existing uh, timber because their landscape is humid, so it's already you know it, it doesn't you, mm. you just have to turn your back yeah. um, or or you know take livestock off and then trees just come up. It's just that's because it's a humid. As Savory would say, uh, Alan Savory would say, uh, a non-brittle landscape. So mm -hmm. it wants to be forest, right? Mm -hmm. So by that token, um, agroforestry as an expression is silver pasture, right? It's it's really managing the stems that are that are already there or that are emerging, as opposed to plantation stuff, which is perhaps what we do more of here in Australia and, and New Zealand. New Zealand is an interesting one because. It's very humid and um, forest wants to come, but a lot of the kinds of trees, like there's an antipathy towards uh, the kind of succession that occurs in New Zealand because it starts off with a lot of shrubbery and it doesn't get to the tree layer. It takes too long. Whereas here in Australia, it gets to the tree, you know, eucalypts come up really quickly in mm. the succession. So you don't have to wait so long. And the same in the United States, you know, you don't, there's lots of, you know, the first emergent vegetation is stuff that you can use, whereas in New Zealand it's shrubbery. Um, you have to wait for some time until the succession. So they'll accelerate that succession by um, by planting all sorts of stuff. So in terms of, like I said, you know, in t the way people express themselves in different places is all very different. Um, there's people, like, it, it drives me crazy when I go to places like California which is so similar to where I am here, climate-wise and so on. And you talk about trees and people just just think, why aren't there tree planting crews everywhere? I mean, the, the hills are so bare and barren and exposed and it's just like, what are you doing here? 
Mm. And I keep going back there and I just keep being disappointed by um, by no action on that front because the landscapes are just, yeah, people are improving grasslands here and there, but that was a savannah landscape. It was either full-scale forest or it was savannah um, with those beautiful uh, live oak tre- evergreen oaks that they have over there. And uh, it's like, why wouldn't you want that back? I mean, you drive around parts of California and, and you can see pockets of where it's this, it's like uh, Iberia, you know, it's like the, the Montado or the Daesa systems or parts of North Africa and other places where you've got this gorgeous parkland of widely spaced oak trees and grasslands and whatnot underneath. And it's like, why don't you want that? Why don't you actually do that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, but they don't. Yeah, it's like, well, okay. <laughs> So it really depends on where you are. Um, I think it's tied into, well, I've just finished reading um, Simon Winchester's latest book called Land, um, and uh, he's a great writer. Um, his other, another book of his is a real favourite of mine, the, the Man Who Loved China. He's written a lot of books. He's a pretty well-known author in, in a sort of... Um, ethnobiology, biological space and so on, um, and anthropological space. Anyway, um, but he was talking about uh, a fascination of mine, which leads to this point, is that depending on your ethnicity, but also the fact that, um, you know, the land rush in places like the United States and to an extent Australia was based on the Enclosure Acts of, of Britain. So the Enclosure Acts obviously... Um, uh, if you're familiar with that, it was started in the 1500s. It was when they basically got rid of the commons. So mm. there was no common land anymore and um, the lords and so on started to carve the land up. And that's where the corollary of that was that the original uh, enclosures were, were living fences. So it was actually, um, it created the archetypal hedgerow systems which are so fantastic and so beneficial to the ecologies of, of, um, of England and, and other places where it's established. And, but it was the property owning part of that, that and the subdivision part of that, that when people left, um, particularly uh, England and to an extent Ireland and otherwise, they, they went with them. Well, what preceded them was English was largely English law and English property rights and all of that, and the English expectation that improvement meant no trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So in order for you to be able to get, you know, this has been the problem here in Australia, we've had mass extinction here and mass deforestation because you couldn't get the title for your land, the freehold title for your land until you improved it. And improvement meant you had to remove all the trees. And so when you've got that deeply embedded part of your culture, um, when that's deeply embedded as part of the the culture, well, then um, you don't see trees in the same way. And I think there's, there's a, you might say, almost an epigenetic um, disdain for for trees in some ways in in rural parts of the world because of that. So it really depends on what your ethnicity is and what country you landed in as to what legal frameworks were there 
that enabled you to then carry on. So if you go to parts of the world which are, which are Spanish or French, well, even the way they subdivided land is very different. You know, so the French and, 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 uh, and Spanish in particular, they subdivided the land in long strips, whereas the British um, did it in squares. Um, and so, you know, that all, that all impacts how you actually um, work with the landscape. When I mean, you're in Greece, I mean, Greece is basically made up of tiny little postage stamps mm-hmm. of land. Mm-hmm. It's also, you know, it started off as something bigger, but with every, every generation, it's been cut, 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 cut. And so a big landholder has got a piece over there and a piece over there. There's nothing that's actually contiguous. It's very chaotic, so that all, yeah. So that all really impacts how you um, then will develop your land. It's all very fascinating from that perspective. And something that when I go to different places, I, I pay attention to, and I often will ask people, what's your heritage? What's your cultural heritage? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that if someone's been on a piece of land for some time, um, especially people who see people who come to courses um, and at this stage, generally people who come to my courses are usually innovator, early adopter types. So they're self learners, they're self activated learners as people. Um, So it's not like they haven't heard of best practices because they've already been on the internet for a long time. They've done a lot of reading. They've gone to a lot of workshops, you know, all that stuff. But if you go to their landscape and they haven't done anything about the tree layer, um, then it probably then you've got to scratch a little deeper as to why yeah, that's yeah. the case, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's that's very interesting. Yeah, it's so you don't usually we don't usually hear that aspect. Uh, I mean, uh, at least I haven't often heard about you know how deep it can go, and I find that a really interesting uh, approach and a sense of sensitivity that's necessary to have clearly in order to understand the context and why somebody would want or not want to plant trees. But I wanted to shift I think, gears I, a little well, bit. Can I just, can I just, yeah, can I just finish on that point? Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I, <laughs> I'm a pretty coarse sort of fellow, but when I get down to it, I say, well, when you, I've had a few of these experiences myself. You go walking. I remember I was in England years ago, and it was November, so it was really, really dark, moonless night, and it was I was in deep forest, and I mm. thought, and I, and you just start to get scared. Well, I did, and I don't scare easily, but I did. I was walking by myself. And I was, you know, where's the boogeyman, right? <laughs> now that's. Now, that's not natural for me. When I walk around yeah. at night, I, I love it. I'm just soaking it up, listening to the sounds and stuff. But mm. I actually felt scared. Mm. And I thought, well, okay. So I thought about it later after I scurried on home. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> my iPhone wasn't bright enough, you know. <laughs> but, but then I thought about it too at another vulnerable moment. We've all done, well, hopefully nearly everyone's done this, is you've gone out and you're taking a, you're doing a poo in the, in, out, outside. You know, you're out in the out in the woods somewhere, and you need to go, and you squat down, and you hear something. You hear a twig go, and you're hyper alert. And you know, like we say, go and why? Why is it that we say go behind a tree? I mean, the tree might be this big. What sort of protection is going behind that tree going to give you in terms of privacy or whatever else? What is it, right? And I think that goes way back. I'd love to be going into places like Africa, which I haven't spent anywhere near enough time in, and say to people who 
are still living relatively close to nature, when you go and take a crap in the woods, because they've got animals there that can, <laughs> they take can you, eat you, take right? You out. right? Yeah, yeah. Take yeah. you out. And we all come from there. So what's the linkage between that? And why is it then would we then, A, as a, you know, humans all over the world have removed predators from the landscape. And that's, that's one thing. And the other thing that we've done is we've created, we've used fire to reduce woody vegetation. We don't want to, we haven't typically removed all of it, but we've used fire to remove a lot of it. And I think that's so we can see and feel safe. And so that when you go out in the woods and you have a and you go and have a crap, that's you being at a very vulnerable position because when you're halfway through it, you're not moving very quickly, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know. So I, I just find that very, I find those moments as a human mm. um, giving us a really close link to where we've come from, and and it, and I think about that in terms of our linkage with the landscape, the 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 floristic landscape, the woody landscape that we're a part of and how dense that is and how we feel at that moment. I th- yeah, I think pretty strongly about that. There's probably, a, there's probably a thesis there. I don't know if I could go to a... Uh, <laughs> I never went to university, but imagine going, going up to your forestry... Uh, professor and say here's my thesis i'm shitting in the woods (laughs) and i feel shit scared (laughs) anyway someone's probably already done it you know looking at this this kind of social this personal context it links quite well to where i wanted to take this next because you know, to give a bit of context uh, to the listeners, you're, you're a farm planner, you've developed tools and methodologies in order to enable people to make the right decisions for their farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in agroforestry, we're often talking at, you know, it's not just about planting as many trees as you can. It's about yeah. planting the right tree at the right place. And then on the side, there's and, le- and making sure it grows, which is another agronomic te- question, but let's not go there at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, you know, what are the design tools and methodologies that we have as farmers that you could, you could, you know, um, uh, present to plant the right tree at the right time? Um, Sorry, the right tree at the right place. Apologies. Well, and this is making the assumption that you want to do it in the first place. Uh, exactly. And then the next mm-hmm. step from that is, all right, we'll say... So you've come to the plate and you said, okay, I've got, a, I've got this piece of land. I've either had it for a long time or I'm new to it. Either or, I've got, I'm, I'm looking at a tree change, right? I'm looking at uh, in- integrating trees into this landscape. Um, well, the first question I would ask um, is, um, in terms of what to plant, um, is ask myself, well, what what grows in the region and that 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 leads you on a bit of a field of discovery where you might you know look around your area and start to see what people are growing already on their different on their different places so you can get a sense of what will you know you think oh gee i'd love to grow a lemon orchard or something like that will do you know is it too frosty for lemons or or is it too frosty for some for some timber species that you're looking at you know what are you're always looking at what the capabilities are in that way. That's the way I do it anyway. Like if I'm going to a new area, I start to look around immediately at the vegetation. Um, and I've got a pretty big, big botanical knowledge. So that, and that, that to me is really fascinating as part of the game of it all is sort of going, okay, ah, right. That'll grow. So you start to do the old analog thing where you go, oh, that will grow. I know that 
those two or those five species have similar requirements, you know, um, you know, whether they can tolerate wet soils or drought or whatever, stony, whatever it is, frost, hot, blah, blah. So that's a good starting point. The other thing is um, what sort of production are you in for? Are you looking... Because, you know, when I, when you, based on your last point, the th- thing that I thought was missing in that point was how much time do you have? Um, because, you know, the, all these things to get them to where you want them to get to means that you've got to spend time on it. And how much time have you got to spend in your week or year to allocate to that? So that's an addition. So, um, so, I, so therefore, are you looking at um, a particular regime of non non um, non forest or non timber products, um, or are you looking at timber product, either or or whatever? So, what are you trying to go for there? And then, all right. So you've got that broad regime, and you might have fifty species that are sort of mapped out there. And then the next step from that, I think, is to um, go and look at the kind of platform that we've developed um, where you'll go. And so what I've just spoken about there is where you're looking at the climate layer, you're going, okay, well, what, what are my climate climatic characteristics? And then I'm looking at the geography layer. So I'm looking at what's the landscape capability, what are its characteristics, how wet, how dry, how wet, you know, all of that stuff, how hot, how cold, all of that, and how that interacts with the landscape. Those two Going through those two layers will then have you come down to looking at, right, well, um, what shape has your land got? Um, where are those zones? You know, do you have rocky zones? Do you have really fertile zones? Da, 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 da. And you might go on say, all right, well, I've got this really fertile zone um, and it's well-drained and I really like the idea of planting olives high production olives, but I also want to use that for uh, other crop purposes or pastoral purposes. So you might go wider spacing on the olives, therefore, or whatever it is. Um, I've, got a, I've got a higher rise here, which has still got relatively deep soil, um, and uh, I've got really deep soil with a metre of drainage, no problem. And I really like the idea of having avocados or that sort of thing. But then you go, well, gee... So I don't have enough time to do all of that. I've only got X amount of time. I don't want to be doing a non uh, a non timber product. I'm looking more at doing a timber product because timber product timber pro- um, managing timber plantations takes less time than than managing non timber plant planting. So you go well. I'm going to have a different integration. I might just focus on my flow lines in the property, which you know you determine by looking at your geography, the the, the layout of the place. Um, I might have some higher landscapes which are quite bare and exposed, um, ridges and so on. They might be good places to go and put some plantings of, of um, you know, full canopy closure uh, block plantings and so on. But then I've got alleys and stuff. I've got roads that I'm building through the place. And you go, gee, it'd be nice to have some some trees that which define that. And I might do those in a particular way. So I might plant them a bit more densely so that I can take out every two or three over time, manage the coppice that comes off that, or I might turn them into chestnuts or oaks or, you know, you start to really open that up. And that's where it's important to go and look at the world of what people are doing and engage in, you know, like 
forums of the type that we've got. So you can sort of put the question, say, hey, what do you think about this? But also go around and look at what other people are doing in your area and beyond so that you can decide what's going to go where. Um, so A, it's a capability thing, but B, it's also a your capability. So when I look at capability, that's your capability and the land's capability. Um, and then you're also looking at um, how it all fits together. Um, mm-hmm. What's the integration? Because agroforestry is about integration ultimately. So yeah. it's about how you're going to fit in agricultural systems, which are um, you know livestock and crops and so on, in with horticultural systems potentially, which is often when you're talking about the non wood uh, the non uh, timber forest products, and then you've got the forest. Uh, sorry, the uh, timber product stuff, which you're putting in there as well. So how are they all going to fit together and how well can I do all of this with the human resources, time, et cetera, that I've got? And that's how we sort of look at pulling it all together. There's so many, so much layering that goes on here and that's why, you know, the, the platform that we use is really good for that because so much of, you know, when you, when you study the geog, when you, put the landscape through, say, a keyline geographic analysis, which divides the landscape into ridges, into valleys, and then to primary land units. Once you do that, um, then that, together with the development of some of the water resources and roads, road networks and water harvesting networks, once you put those things together, then the position of where trees will go will actually follow all of those those lines. So they'll follow the the lines of the geography, they'll follow the lines of the water, and they'll follow the lines of, of access. And then from that, yeah, and then from that will follow the lines of where you put fencing and and mm-hmm. so on. So that's something that I, I wanted us to maybe elaborate a bit more on is. When you look at your at the scale of permanence that you've adapted from humans, yeah. if I understand correctly, and you've clearly there's an order of kind of of, of priority, if you could say it in that way. I'm sure you've got a better way to say it. Um, yeah, I say priority. Yeah, a priority. So uh, there's of course climate defines everything. Geography very difficult to change, and then you have water, and then access, and then forestry. So why is water and access above forestry when you're looking at what what does that imply for for the design methodology, what does that mean for a farmer? Well, it, I've, I've been I've been battling with this one a bit lately because I've been having a conversation with um, Alan Savory and Jody Butterfield about this with the development of their own um, or the the continual development of holistic land planning, holistic management land planning as a framework, and a lot of holistic management people thanks to myself and others like Ian Chapman have embedded the 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 yeoman's or the keyline scale of permanence into their land planning and that's not how um Savory uh, Alan and um, Jody have and others have sort of seen the best fit they don't see because and it all depends and this is a context thing so if you're a graze if you're a grazier then where do trees fit in all of this? Well, they don't, right? If you're a hardcore grazier, then trees don't, you know, we're going to grow adapted, we're going to grow animals which are adapted to grasslands, right? Um, And when you look at that methodology of farm planning or land planning, it really, it, it actually puts fencing and puts the fencing and water layers together, right? 
Um, it, um, they use uh, planning circles, so they'll say, all right, well, water point, water point, water point, water point. There'll be a, a circumference around that water point, which is the maximum distance that animals should have to walk to and from that water point. Otherwise, their production will decrease. And so you fence mm -hmm. around that, right? And you have these sort of cells which go from that. Now, um, now that's okay. You know, if that's how you want to roll, that's how you want to roll. We look at things a bit more integratively. And um, so we'll say, okay, well, um, there's a role for looking at all of these different layers together. So you'll start, so obviously climate and geography, um, you can't do much about. Um, so they create what I call the rules of the game. Yeah. And they are the constitutional or foundation layers. That's how I call them because they are just that. Then you get the water layer. Well, water is the great enabler. Um, so, and key line, as Yeomans described it, the key line plan was, um, he described it as the control of water. Because when you control water, whether it's, like for me, it starts at the raindrop. What are you doing? As soon as that, because the moment that raindrop hits the land surface, that's when all the action happens, right? Mm -hmm. And it's either bad action or it's really great action, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you're the manager. So, what are you doing about that? Is it hitting a canopy of, of leaves and then cascading through that canopy of leaves and catalyzing a whole series of processes? Is it coming down and landing on bare soil? Is it coming onto a grassland that's got a mat of litter um, on the soil surface? Yeah, there's all different options there, but you as a manager, um, can take make choices about about how that interaction will occur, right? And so that's a really key parameter. But then you get down to, well, I need water to to for myself in storage. I need it for livestock, so I need it. So I need some source of water. So I need to acknowledge what the sources of water are, because if I don't, then it's going to make it make agricultural production um, of a of of any more profitable agricultural production um, difficult to, to um, continue. So it is, it, that's why it's there. So it may all be there and therefore you don't have to worry about it. But it's positioning, um, especially if you start reticulating water with pipes and all of that sort of thing, that positioning of where those pipes all get reticulated will then create a line, right? Yeah. And that line, the position of that will have to generally be based on landscape shape, right? On the on the mm -hmm. on the on the geography. So as soon as you put that in, then you go, okay, well, something else is probably going to follow that line, right? And it may well be access. So access and water are, I think, probably the most closely linked layers. Um, and then you've got. Um, and then you've got, uh, so the forestry layer then, well, often will follow that. Although the forestry layer is a bit of a funny one because it will also have its own linkage to landscape. Um, so often, for example, um, you'll look at um, um, putting it, uh, well, the first places that, that forestry will often be integrated will be around the edges to define the place, and that's the first place to put shelter, for example. Well, this is the way I look at it anyway, because you'll have this artificial boundary called a property boundary, 
um, depending on the scale of the property, of course, um, which is an obvious place to mark with trees. Mm. Um, and it protects and it encloses, there's that word, enclosure act, um, but it's an obvious place to put something. Um, the other obvious place to put something are on flow lines. So where you've got water flow, permanent water flow or, or ephemeral flow through your land, often that's a limiting factor because you get seasonal inundation and so on. And so that's a limit, that's a land capability limit. And so to get land protection and to make it take advantage of that, of those seasonal or perennial flows, it's a really good place to, and these are what I call biological corridors often. So you can link the hills with with the sea because the sea and the hills are linked by drainage lines. Mm-hmm. So they're only natural that if you and, – and if they have poorer capability, it seems natural to me that you would go and put trees into that system, right? As a And then they just happen to divide the landscape up because you've got ridge, valley, ridge, valley, ridge, valley. So you've got that. That means you can – you know, you, you can start to divide the landscape up by virtue of these geographic lines. And it makes it easy for you then to make decisions about where things go. Um, it's just a matter of what those species complexes are going to be then. And then you've got, and then you've got the rest of the landscape, yeah. right, the ridges, and that's where you, you know, you might look at a whole, run, you know, whether that's going to be production stuff because you're a tree person. Um, mm. or it's going to be um, stuff which is more supporting what you do, which is probably the more classic agroforestry approach where you, you know, you're spacing trees out widely as a shelter or as an amenity planting and so on. Interesting. Well, it's, it's like adapting design in, um, to, the, to, the, to what the landscape is, is calling out. Sure. Uh, sure. It's, it's nearly biomimicry in a way. With yeah, an is. adaptation to our to satisfy our needs and our economy. Yeah, and it's interesting when um, when we look at the way Aboriginal people in this country managed um, their landscapes through the use of fire, in particular, that's where they left trees are not that different to where um, to how I just described the layout. Mm, so very interesting. Um, yeah, it is well because. I think they understood that and still do understand um, that flow lines, for example, are the conduits. They're the connect. They're the natural connections. Um, they're the, that's where that's all the nutrients flows in water. So of course they're nutrient corridors. So why wouldn't you um, have the full floristic expression, which then allows the full biodiversity expression to actually be yeah. in those same lines right and then yeah. connect the forest with the or connect the uh, the hills with the ocean i had a, a a bit of a of a challenge understanding why the economy layer is at the bottom and to explain myself yeah. it's interesting that you know when we look at setting up a farm business which we, we've done at mazzy farm the economy is is what at the end of the day just as much as the soil I mean, and they're connected in, 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 in very complex ways, of course, but the economy is also what defines our success on that landscape or not in terms of a family, um, in terms of a family farm. And so the economy layer has a lot, in my opinion, is, has a lot of weight there. And I was wondering why you decided to put it in number 10 and why it's not a, 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 no, a consideration. It's at number that's, nine. 
Number nine, apologies, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't, so number 10 is energy. Do my homework good enough. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> well, look, um, I think this is, and I may may have not done enough explanation on this. I mean, our, mm-hmm. our platform, yes, while it was adapted from Yeoman's eight scale of, per, uh, eight layer or eight factor scale of permanence, is not a scale of permanence. It's got elements to that and you can certainly look at it that way. But I look at more of it as a checklist. And I think okay. that with every, within every layer that you go, you will consider every other layer. So just mm-hmm. because a, I've happened to pay homage to P.A. Yeomans by mm-hmm. retaining his first eight, as it were, because there's a natural logic to that, I think, in terms of the, if yeah. you apply the scale of permanence and the way that you will generally plan a farm out, um, as I just said, um, but so there's that part, there's the respect and homage, but then there's also with my addition of economy and energy layers, um, when you look at, when you go and look at the whole platform again, you look at it as being a checklist and you go, okay, mm-hmm. well, if I'm looking at the forestry layer, I'm thinking about climate, I'm thinking about geography, I'm thinking about water, I'm thinking about access, I'm thinking about economy, I'm thinking about energy, I'm thinking about, yeah. so, so mm-hmm. you know, so it doesn't matter if I'm putting in a fence thinking about economy i'm thinking about it yeah, yeah. you know so it doesn't matter it really, it's not linear it's all integrated mm. it's all integrated so it's just more or less trying to have it so that we at least have um, a platform that considers as much as we can because yeah. I, I in in my um in my search um for for platforms be it permaculture holistic management whole farm planning on it goes um, in all of these different methodologies that I've seen out there. They don't. They don't catch it all. Um, holistic management doesn't do anything. Doesn't say anything in its land planning about how you integrate trees into the landscape. It's got nothing about that. Yeoman scale of permanence had nothing to do about the economy or energy. Um, mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with with legal issues or yeah. your own personal context and so on. Permaculture. It's, it's, you know, it is what it is. Um, it had missing gaps as far as I could tell as well, particularly when it came, I mean, it's very um, community-based as opposed to individually centred um, and so on. Um, and a lot of its um, economic, um, well, the kind of economic principles that it would support, I suppose, are... Um, often more to the left of, of centre than to the right of centre. Um, so they're often more community-based um, than, um, than being individual enterprise-based and so on. So, so people will feel like, and that's perfectly fine if that's your context. And then, so what I've tried to do, and, what, and that's what we try to do as a, as a community, is try to have it so that um, people have a broader range of options as opposed to just following one church, as it were, being poly- yeah. polytheistic, not um, monotheistic. Okay. And I'm curious to know how holistic management, because it's something that um, you work a lot with as well, from what I understood. How does that fit mm-hmm. into, again, a farmer is making trying to make decisions as to what trees to plant uh, what tree to plant at what place? How does holistic management help him to achieve that goal? 
Well, the first thing that holistic management invites you to do is develop your own individual context. So what you as an individual. So like I said, that's a very big distinction, I would say, from permaculture per se, where they work really well together. Um, and, And permaculture, holistic management and key line are really good buddies as mm. planning frameworks, I think. Um, but I think what people have got to do is sort of break down their natural tendency to follow one religion as opposed to multi multiple religions. And that's just a human tendency because if you've been raised in any of the Abrahamic faiths, for example, well, then there's only one God, right? And there's only one mm-hmm. way to worship it or he or she or whatever it is. So, you know, again, there's a psychological, social psychological underpinning to the way that we decide about how we're going to follow things. And so we, you know, we're a biodynamic farmer, Mm. you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. So, so when we look at holistic management, the first thing that it, I think, um, has us um, consider is what is our context? What's the context of us? You know, what? What are our core motivations? But then how they link into the people that are around us, um, you know, usually our, our, our loved ones, our family and so on, and, what's, and ask them the same question, what's their context? That then has you, if you have the right inquiry, um, now I should go back a moment. Holistic management's greatest um, coverage with people is the, the grazing community. It's not with the forestry community or the business community or anything Mm -hmm. like that. So, um, and if you look at the permaculture community, a lot of people in permaculture just happen to be more into horticulture um, because of the perennial nature, the perennial woody nature of it and where it was born and all of the rest of it. Um, So, um, so most people are into that. So therefore, um, for a lot of them, the consideration is straight away for the grazing plan. So like there's no, there's no holistic management forestry plan um, at this stage. Um, mm. Even the conversations we've been having about the, the land planning in holistic management has been that it's being changed from holistic land planning to holistic land planning for livestock, mm-hmm. right? So there's nothing that I can see on the horizon which is saying holistic land planning for agroforestry. But if that's so, your thing, mm-hmm. but if that's your thing, then the holistic management framework in terms of its decision-making framework, which is sort of asking a series of questions, economic and otherwise, and its financial planning frameworks and so on, can all help you, um, can all aid you to make better decisions about um, about. Uh, what you will plant where um, and why. It's probably more the why questions than the what questions um, and try and help you make, make sure that you're asking the right questions about your economy on all of this, which, you know, largely the permaculture space doesn't look at. I mean, there's no, there's nothing in the permaculture principles which talks about your personal economy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you can use those principles, but there's no permaculture um, uh, uh, financial planning framework, for example, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's where I think, again, you know, it's it's really useful to use permaculture principles, key line, the key line plan, and holistic management together. It's it's you know you pick and you you know you pick your best best options to do the best things and bring that together as an amalgam, which in a case is 
it's like agroforestry itself. I mean, you're trying to assemble a whole here yeah. mm-hmm. and there'll be a bit of this that you use and a bit of that. And yeah, so, so holistic management, I think, is the best framework that I've come, come across as far as um, answering those, especially those initial guiding questions yeah. about what are your motivations and all of the rest. And then, then, then you go from there and start to pick and choose your methodologies, which, um, which will advance you further. You know, when, you, when you're talking now about this integration, agroforestry, but also what, what you're clearly, what's clearly observable in the scale of permanence, all these different elements need to work together and the forestry. And then there's you, and as you call it, the climate of the mind, and there's, there's all our social context. It needs to come together to create a business that is, when looking at a farm, that is economically viable and ecologically regenerative at this point we can't even say sustainable but doesn't that somehow seem like an insurmountable task it's it requires so much complexity have you seen it in practice like happen where there's a farm that's just boom and just created this and here we are yeah is have, this but they're possible? really rare they're really they're really rare and um, what they require is an enormous amount of um discipline um mm. there's usually yeah the, and this this is one of the things that I suppose I've I've been in my sort of post permaculture period because permaculture mm. you know really is fund is founded on idealism. A lot of this stuff is. I mean, even Yeoman's stuff was funded on founded on some form of idealism. I mean, Yeoman's was a wealthy, relatively he was a self made guy who'd made a lot of money during the war and so on, and bought a few farms and. He expressed himself, as a lot of people have done over the years, over thousands of years, that the best way that to express their their wealth was to go and buy an estate and to develop those estates and, and have managers on there and bring their friends out and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So he's he's just, as so often has happened in, in the broader regenerative agriculture movement, if you look at a lot of the leaders of it, the leading figures, they're wealthy men. Um, so and often self-made men and really driven men, and that's where the, that's how they've been able to do that. Um, they've been able to self-subsidise their own endeavours and to prove a point. And you know, so they're they're really they're you know they're individually highly driven people, right? And then you get the rest of us, and I think this is where you're getting to, and that's what I try and remind people: say, look. You know, I work really closely with Joel Sellerton, for example. He's a great mm-hmm. friend. And people look at what he's doing and what his family's doing and they've done an amazing job. But what they've achieved is as a, uh, is based on a whole range of different uh, reasons. I mean, their religiosity, their ethnic background, um, how the, their work ethic, um, which is all closely intertwined, and and their outlook on life, um, you know, they don't they don't they don't play sport, for example. You know, then so it, you look at people here in Australia, for example, or elsewhere. You know, football and cricket and different games are really important in community life, but they all take or golf all take up time, or being social animals, right? Going catching up, fishing, recreation and stuff. And you look at the Salatons, they don't do much of that. If they do it, they do a lot of it on their own farm. They hunt on their farm. They, you know, only relatively recently have afforded themselves a license to go and take vacations. So, you know, that mm. 
those those choices are reflected in the way that that their places happen to have been developed. But other yeah. people like like me, I like to go to the football on the weekend. When I, or there's other people who are very involved in local community life and so on. So that's going to take away time that you've got from being a land manager. Right? Yeah, which so, requires a huge so amount of time. Hmm. Well, that's right. Which exactly? So that's going to knock off the amount of complexity and variability that you can then deal with. So that's that's a really big part of what we try and capture early. Mm-hmm. Is just how much. That's why I made the point before. How much time do you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you don't have the time, then don't do it or mm. downgrade your. Like if you, for, you know, if you're looking again at the forestry integration into your into your system, then just plant trees and shrubs and stuff, and just do it for biodiversity purposes, and maybe a bit of firewood, and if you're lucky, a saw log or two, because. You won't, don't bother trying to get the really high, you know, you go down to Rowan Reeds and you look at what he's doing or an Andrew Stewart's or any of these sort of, you know, really high, high operating farms. Um, they don't get that just because of luck. They get it because a lot of bloody hard work and yeah. really strategic dedication has gone on. But that, that's at the cost of other, well, not cost, but they haven't been able to do a lot of other things in their life that, others have chosen to do so that's that's where you're at and that's where holistic management seems this is something that we've suffered from at Mansi farm um we did not do enough planning at the beginning this is why we're drilling into the whole planning side right now with you because you are a, a, a planning a farm planning educator and you have a lot of experience in this so i can't, I can't stress enough for, for for our experience how how much we have suffered from this lack of planning and uh, and how much we would have, you know, clarifying our context, our personal needs. You know, it's, it's also a very personal experience. Like, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to dedicate time to? How much time do I want to give to this and that, as you've just explained really well? And um, and then when you get engaged with a piece of land and with a project, you, you're, you're, you can't get out. You're all in kind of thing. Um, so it's... It took me a while because I'm a natural innovator and that's where it comes down to your... Um, the acknowledgement of your own personality type and whatnot, which is something I have developed over time to acknowledge. But I that's what I accelerate now when I'm dealing with people um, in our programs is not only understand uh, what you want, but understand who you are. So um, do you have a propensity to want to innovate all of the time? All right, well, if you have that propensity, then realise what that what the implications of that are. Because, you know, being high, as I call it, high on innovation all the time can cripple you mm. because you've got to actually have the discipline to not be, you know, yes, be innovative, but do it do it at the right amount. Like companies only, you know, the best companies in the world only innovate to, well, only spend about 5 to 10% of their of their income on innovation. And there's, you know, because if they go any higher than that, then, um, then it cripples them. It's just not economic. So there's reasons for that, right? So um, I remember years ago um, we were in the United States and a couple came up to us and, and they were about, about, about the same age as us. And um, the woman came up and said, oh, I'm so tired. My, my hut, They were permaculturalists. And, you know, chasing this, what I would call a miasma of outcomes, 
you know, every, you know, you've got to have every animal, every, every tree, da, 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 you know, this sort of utopian ideal. And it's trying to keep up with that complexity um, meant that they were over the top on innovation all the time. And um, the woman's, and they've been doing it for 20 years, and the woman said, I'm really tired. I've been, you know, I just can't keep up. Like she'd realised earlier than her husband had. And she was the, um, yeah, it just caught up with her. And I thought, yeah, yeah. And I've, you know, I've been the same. I've had to deal with that myself. But um, luckily, I've pretty well put that genie in the bottle. Mm. And it's hard to because you get excited. I mean, the natural excitement is about how you'd like a place to look and be expressed. And it's an expression of yourself and so on. And, um, yeah, if you don't have the capability, well, then you don't. So be, be at home with that. Um, if the best you can do is um, have a really great shelter belt and it's, you know, it doesn't been pruned as well as you like and stuff. I mean, it's often the thing, you know, people's ego comes in again here where you have people over and, and you start making excuses for why things aren't as they, are, as they could be, um, especially when you're in this broader space when, you know, everyone's so high on how everything can be so bloody fantastic. Mm. I mean, they look Interesting. at... Because, they, they, you know, you look at all the gods in this space, whether it's some of the newer gods like Richard Perkins or whether you look at um, some of the older gods like a Joel Salatin or otherwise or a Rowan Reed or any number of people in this space and you go there and you go, oh, my God, you know, this everything's so bloody fantastic and then there's me <laughs> and I just can't, I can't just, I'm just not that, I'm just not, not that good. Well, it, maybe it's not that you're not that good. It's maybe you're just making other choices in your life to do other things. Maybe you're a better father. Maybe maybe you're a better, you know, you've got more time for other things. Maybe you spent, you see your mum more often, you know. Yeah. spend more time with your kids than some of these folks do. Um, maybe they pull it off. Who knows, you know, but, you know, we're all individual. And that's that's where I get back to again, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't don't put yourself under so much pressure because um, if you do, you'll, um, you may well um, be very disappointed in yourself, <laughs> which is not a good feeling. For sure. That's very interesting. I think that's a really nice way to, to, to finish the interview. Um, some important considerations have come out here of, you know, what decisions to make for your farm, how to, what kind of farmer to be, what kind of agroforestry to be. And I think that's, uh, um, these are the, the, this is the starting point, I think, um, for a farmer that's transitioning or for a farmer that's, um, that's getting started from scratch and buying a piece of land. It's, um, it's a starting point. Well, I think I, I think even a beaver would say, uh, "Don't bite off more than you can chew." <laughs> you know, I, I actually really want to do the Rex um, training, um, mm-hmm. and um, maybe uh, well, next one starts on August the second. August the second. Okay, and how do how do we find out more about it if we want to join? Um, well, you go to regrarians.org. Okay. And um, if you look on our web page, there's a really big sign that says Rex. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Obviously clear. <laughs> it'll, 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 make, it'll make it really easy for you. Um, yeah, that's the best thing. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, but it starts on the, it starts on the, um, the 2nd of August in, the, um, in your time zone. So mm-hmm. um, 
and then our, our time zone, um, it's on the 3rd of August, but to the same day. Okay. And it runs for 13 weeks, okay. continuous weeks. There's a webinar on the Tuesday or Monday, depending on where you mm-hmm. are, and then another one. So that's like the, the layer where we introduce yeah. that, that week's layer. And then we, um, and then on on the on the latter part of the week, we have another one which is a Q and A where we check in and check in on the task work that you've submitted okay. and all of that sort of thing, um, or any other questions. Yeah. It's pretty open. And what's the pricing? Uh, and that's also, it's ninety five US a month okay. um, for twelve months because it's um, you get two thirteen week programs in that period. Okay. Because it's again, it's it's it's. It's us responding to what people's capabilities are, because mm-hmm. um, we've done enough courses to know that even thirteen weeks, you know, spending six hours a week, which is the sort of ultimate amount, at least, that you should be spending, people just can't do that. So we say, I'll do the first recs, and you might just focus on getting your context sorted and getting your maps sorted, and you know, focus on some of the key layers, maybe where your pipes are, or mm-hmm. this, that, or the other, depending on what your interests are. And then do the next one um, later in the year. Um, and then you might say, oh, well, this is where I'm going to look at my, because I've spent the time looking at my land because we've taught you how to look at your land differently mm-hmm. and so on. That's where you might Interesting. now be better equipped to start making decisions about where trees will go or, you know, this, that, or different soil treatments and so on. Um, even tre- even um, how you're going to set things up for yourself financially and otherwise. So. Yeah, it's a longitudinal process, and this is where I was saying earlier about you're a perennial. Mm-hmm. You know, our programs are perennial. That's why we've got a twelve month program. Okay. And once you've done that twelve month program, then you're you remain a member for life of our of our workplace and the planner level. So you can witness every rex that we ever do in the future. Okay. Uh, if you want to participate in it fully and have us involved in our our high level of engagement, well, then you have to pay, but. Yeah, we want we want people who are who have become our alumni to then come and support others who've come before them because it's kind of like a barn raising where mm. everyone should be there to help each other. Fantastic, very interesting. So, um, yeah. thank you so much for giving me uh, giving us uh, the time to uh, to discuss these important topics. I really appreciate uh, you no coming on the podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. No worries, I appreciate it all. Cool. And uh, I'll go and I'll better go and have a look at your backlog now. <laughs> yeah, take it. I've got a lot of podcasts I listen listen to. There's, yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe uh, maybe you find a few of us interesting. I don't know. Uh, hopefully, our objective is to make this interesting for practitioners. Um, and well, I spend a lot of my quiet time is reading mm. um, and uh, usually driving, which I don't do as much as I used to because of COVID. Mm. Um, is good podcast yeah. time, but. Uh, or when I'm in the kitchen at the restaurant here, which I'm about to go and back go back to doing. So maybe I'll listen to some of yours in the next uh, while I'm baking. Thank you so much for making it this far. It was another long one, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please consider supporting us on our website. You can go on the support us page and donate very easily with a small app called Gumroad um, that you open up on your browser. So please consider this. We're doing this on the side of our jobs and all of your support will help us to keep going and keep producing or try to produce some high quality content. So thank you so much and see you for the next episode.